Will you open with me in your Bibles to Matthew 21, please? As we come kind of once again to the study of God's Word, last week we had Dr. Bealey help us by giving us an overview of what we call the Passion Week. That's what we were working through. It's that final week in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ that leads up to the cross. And that outline and that overview is going to be very helpful because we are going to be in the Passion Week for longer than a week, which surprises absolutely no one if you've been here for a while. Uh, But the fact that it takes place over six days, uh, we're going to be over this for a couple of months at least. And it's not just because I have the ability to be long-winded. It's because the gospel writers really place a lot of emphasis on this. If you go through the various gospel accounts, we have significantly more ink devoted to these days than we do any other period in the ministry of Jesus Christ. They are so very critical, which is why Dr. Bealey alluded to the fact that they are really a week that changed human history. Without this week, nothing is as we know it. Certainly nothing in our life uh, is oriented around the faith of Jesus Christ if this week doesn't happen. And and so not only does this week happen, but we have to have a framework for how it happens and why it happens. And one of the things that I hope you picked up on last week was that behind all of this are some very human circumstances. Uh, We come to the gospel accounts and we know the end of the story. We come to them as good theologians and we understand that God has a sovereign plan and purpose ordained from before time began that will work itself out. And that is absolutely true. Christ will not go to the cross a moment early or a moment late, but woven into this narrative that we have is some very human drama and intrigue and emotion. Sometimes we forget that at this point, Jesus is a fugitive, and that is a real thing. There is a reason that he does not simply hang around in Jerusalem for those three years. There's a reason that as he follows the rest of those pilgrims that he comes in a crowd, because as Dr. Bealey said, there's safety in numbers. There's a reason that the religious leaders want to arrest him and be done with him, but they won't do it at a certain time because they don't want to start a riot. All of this fits within the predetermined plan of God, absolutely, but all of this flows out in some ways that we can kind of dehumanize and just get very textbook about if we're not careful. But now we're in Jerusalem. The king has come into his city, and the king has really specifically come into his temple within his city, and he has made it known who he is. And as much as there's the human element and the drama behind all of this, what we have to see is that there has been a massive shift, and a shift that is going to continue to sharpen as the week goes on, because now we have the clear presentation of the Messiah. Jesus accepts the worship of those crowds. Jesus accepts the worship of the children in the temple. And as the week goes on, uh, the divide is not going to be about whether you know who Jesus is or not. It's going to be about whether you accept who Jesus absolutely claims to be or not. We know that Jesus has come into Jerusalem to be handed over and delivered to suffer and die. He's told his disciples that much. His rejection by the religious leaders and his rejection by the people sets the stage for the redemption of his people, his church. So as we build up to that today, we're going to see really what happens when people question the authority of the king. This king who has come with an authority like no other, how is it that people respond to that kind of authority? We're going to be in Matthew 21, and today we're going to be covering verses 18 through 27. I want to read verses 18 to 22 just to kind of set the stage, the first part of that narrative. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 18. This is what God's word says. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. 
And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray. Lord, there's a remarkable promise in that little paragraph that whatever we ask for in faith, we receive. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see rightly, to ask in faith and to ask according to your will. Lord, we come into familiar territory in the gospel accounts. We come into places and stories and narratives that we know. Lord, help us to see We bring blindness. We bring spiritual blindness. We ask along with the psalmist that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. And Lord, let us not be content in merely seeing the truth. God, help us to orient our lives around the truth. Help us respond rightly to the truth. Lord, will you help us to worship in a way that honors you? We need your help to do all of those things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Most of us don't like being told what to do, or maybe it's just me, but I don't think so. Uh, Part of it, I think, probably is embedded in our culture. We are a Western, independent people, and nobody tells us what to do with our time, with our money, uh, or with our body in certain circumstances. More than just a cultural thing, I think that sometimes it's built into the fact that we've seen leadership abused. We've seen those who make demands come from a place of tyranny and uh, overstepping, and so maybe we respond negatively to demands on us because of that. But more than anything, I think if we're really honest and we boil it all down, it's just a part of who we are in the flesh. We are not a naturally humble or submissive people. On my own, my heart does not cry out, to submit myself to the will of others, let alone the will of God. We're taught from a very young age to say, you're not the boss of me. And we just refine how we say it over the years. We're talking about the authority of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about where he gets the authority to do what he does and to say what he does. Now that's been questioned a number of times through his ministry, and we would think that maybe it's a settled thing by now, but as we go through even today, we're going to see that the disciples still struggle to pick up on this. They still struggle uh, to figure out how his authority displays itself and why it even matters, and we're going to see the religious leaders just completely reject that authority altogether. But who is Jesus to do and say the things that he does and the things that he says? The answer to that question actually has eternal implications to it. So let's open up beginning in verse 18, and the first thing that we're going to see is a sign of his authority. Jesus gives a a sign of his authority, really a a picture, but not a picture in the way that we normally think of it. We've seen Jesus give verbal illustrations, we call them parables, and now we're going to see a very visual illustration. It's kind of a a living parable, if you will. Uh, Verse 18, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, 
he became hungry. Now, a couple of things I want us to remember very quickly because it sets the stage. We're in the morning as he's returning to the city. Where is he returning from? Well, remember that uh, at this point, Jerusalem is preparing for the Passover and it is swollen to several times its normal size. The Passover is one of those feasts where those who were able to were called to return to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so upwards of hundreds of thousands of people are crowded in a very small space, significantly smaller than we probably realize. This is not even uh, Camarillo. This is a significantly smaller area of space and so you know bedrooms are in short supply so during the nights jesus will go to bethany he'll stay with friends he comes into the city during the day to do ministry now the other thing that i want us to remember is that matthew is not strictly focused on chronology here matthew focuses much more significantly on the building up of themes and what Matthew does right here is he treats this cursing of the fig tree that we're going to go over as one kind of snapshot where if we were to go to Mark's gospel, he separates it. They both focus around the temple, which is going to be very, very important. But I want you to remember that Matthew is building thematically here towards something. And so where this falls, even though we're two weeks separated from cleansing the temple, the fact that Matthew puts this immediately after those and ties those together so closely in his narrative matters. It means something. All right. So as Jesus is returning to the city, he becomes hungry. And that in and of itself is interesting, at least to me, because let's not forget, this is the one who called all things into existence in the very beginning. This is the one with the power to calm the wind and the waves with a word. This is the one who makes lepers clean. This is the one who makes blind see. And he still gets hungry. It should probably never cease to strike us that the one who formed creation took on flesh. That when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is our good and faithful high priest, it is also our merciful high priest who knows and sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus did not just put on the costume of a human male and play a part. He took on flesh and all the frailty that comes along with it. And when you recognize who he is, that is astounding the humility that it would take for the Son of God even to be known as hungry. But Jesus is hungry as he's coming in and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. What in the world is going on here? Jesus is walking from Bethany into Jerusalem and at some point along that route, he sees a fig tree. Uh, fig trees were common, not so much here, and I confess that I am not a fig farmer and know nothing about keeping any kind of plant alive, let alone a fig tree. Uh, but a little bit of research turns up some interesting things about fig trees. First of all, uh, remembering when we are, we are in April, probably April of 33 A.D., and April is not the season for figs. In fact, if we were to read Mark's gospel, he tells us explicitly it is not the season for figs. Figs bloom early summer, bloom toward the fall. You get a couple different times a year, but this isn't the right time for figs. So why does Jesus expect there to be figs on there? I mean, right now is not the season for pomegranates. I can look out my back window and see our three pomegranate trees, and they are bare and ugly. And if I go out to them looking for pomegranates, I'm going to be disappointed. And it would seem absolutely foolish for me to wake up tomorrow morning and expect to have pomegranates on that tree and then be upset when they didn't. That doesn't make sense. Well, Jesus walks up to this tree anticipating fruit because he sees the leaves. And if 
we know anything about fig trees? Again, which I don't, aside from reading a few things. Uh, fig trees produce fruit and then leaves, or the fruit and the leaves simultaneously. So in other words, the fact that this tree had leaves indicated that fruit should have already been present. Maybe not fully ripe, mature fruit, but certainly uh, immature but edible fruit, enough to satisfy hunger even if it wasn't the full-fledged fruit. And so the fact that he sees this tree in leaf is what draws it to him. The fact that it wasn't fig season is actually what draws Jesus to this tree because this tree is demonstrating that it ought to already have something present. The presence of leaves means there should have been the presence of fruit. And so as he goes up to this tree, there's every reasonable expectation to think that there's at least the beginnings of immature fruit on this tree. But it's an empty display. It's meaningless. They're leaves with no fruit. It's a sign with no substance behind it. And that's the point that Jesus is going to make. See, there has to be more to this than the idea that Jesus is a little bit hangry and curses a fig tree that didn't know any better. Jesus is not given to fits of anger and giving in to emotion. He has a reason for doing what he does. Because the hunger was real. And the expectation of fruit was real. Now is when we have to understand why this is where it is. Why is it that Matthew places this immediately following the narrative of cleansing the temple? Why is it that if we were to go to Mark's gospel, we would see that on the way into town, Jesus sees the fig tree and curses it. Mark then takes us immediately to the temple where Jesus cleanses the temple. And then as they're leaving, the disciples are, the next time they come by, the disciples see and respond to the fig tree. Mark makes it kind of a, a narrative sandwich. And all of it surrounds the temple, and all of it surrounds worship. And the idea is that there's more to this than simply a fig tree. What was the temple supposed to be? We went over it two weeks ago. What was the temple supposed to be and supposed to do? The temple was supposed to be the center of the right worship of God. The temple was supposed to be this place where sacrifice and submission to God and his word were continually on display. It was supposed to be this place of quiet and contemplation and repentance and sacrifice. This place where there's this beautiful picture of a holy God, an unimaginably, unthinkably holy God, and a sinful people who somehow are allowed to live side by side because he has made it so that a sacrifice can cover over your sins. And it was none of that. It was a flea market. It was noisy. It was crowded. It was a profit opportunity. But what do the people think about it? Well, the people say at least it's still the temple. I mean, we don't like paying the high prices, but at least we're doing the things. As long as we have the temple, what's God going to do? Not much has actually changed since the times of the prophets when God writes about, or when God says through Isaiah and through Amos that he condemns their worship. It was worship without heart, and that's what's happened here. They carry on doing the things. They check the boxes. They go to the place. They sing the songs. They bring the sacrifices. But what, happening, what is happening at this point in the temple isn't worship. It's just a show. The people who are supposed to be ministering to the nation, the priests, the Levites, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, they are not shepherds. At this point, they are wolves. The people who are supposed to draw near in humility and worship 
who are supposed to be pleading with God to restore them to obedience and fellowship with him were more than content to plead with God to remove Rome so that they could come back to political prominence. And Jesus utterly condemns all of that. That was that picture of him cleansing the temple. He condemns that whole system that was now in place. Why? Because it's leaves without fruit. It's a demonstration of worship without any actual heart fruit of worship. Now, is that directed at everyone? Not necessarily. There are disciples that have responded in faith. There are those who have come to him with the, at least some understanding and humble response to who he is. And in fact, Jesus is going to work in the element of faith in just a moment. But by and large, it's not just the religious leaders, it's the nation that opposes Christ. What have we seen over and over through Matthew's gospel? If we've read the other gospel accounts, and most of us have, what do we see over and over? That Jesus is massively popular when he does the special things. When he multiplies the bread and fish, when he heals the blind and the lame. When he teaches about repentance, when he demands that you abandon everything and follow him, God shrinks awfully quickly. And God doesn't tolerate empty worship. He condemns it. He condemned it in the Old Testament of the prophets, and now the Son in the flesh condemns failed worship. God's not impressed with your external show of holiness. He's always demanded the heart. And that's the same, whether you're a king, whether you're a Pharisee, whether you're a tax collector, whether you're just the average Jew on the street, God has always been supremely concerned with the heart rather than just the habit of worship. Now that physical sign, the point behind it is very nearly completely lost on the disciples. Because they see the demonstration of power, and look at what they say in verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And you would think that by this point, that would be the last of their questions. But Jesus has a divine purpose in this part. He's going to use this as a teachable moment. Because they need to understand his authority. They, not, they don't just need to understand that he has authority. They need to understand how to respond to that authority. Look at what Jesus says in verse 21. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. That's a fairly shocking thing to say. You're marveling at what happened to this fig tree, but with faith, uh, you won't only be able to do this kind of thing to a fig tree, you'll be able to speak to a mountain and it will move. Well, Jesus was not in the mountain-moving industry. He did not change the physical topography of Israel. That's not what happened. So what is he talking about here? This isn't about trees or mountains. This is about faith. And that's how the answer ties into the fig tree. And that's how this narrative ties in to the worship that was happening or not happening is a more accurate way to say it in the temple right before this. Because if we think about it, why is Jesus going to ultimately condemn the religious leaders? It's for their lack of faith. 
It's not because they didn't have the right amount of knowledge. It's not because they didn't read the right books. It's not because they didn't wear the right clothes. Ultimately, it is their heart failure, their lack of faith. Why is the nation going to stand condemned? Because of their lack of faith. They're going to cling to the temple. They are going to cling to the system. They are going to cling to the sacrifices, and they are going to ignore the Savior. But somehow they think that if they do X, God must do Y. If they sing the song, God must be pleased with it. If they bring the sacrifice, God must accept it. If they pray, they understand that God must hear them. But all of those things without faith are not only ignored by God, they're they're actively condemned by God. But what does faith do? Faith makes the impossible possible. Faith makes it so that that unimaginably holy God can dwell with the people that he calls his own. Faith makes it so that that holy God that you've sinned against restores relationship that that was broken by sin. Faith gains you a kingdom and an inheritance that's beyond anything you can rightly even understand or imagine, and certainly more than you could ever deserve. It's not even the only time Jesus has talked about moving mountains. We can go back to Matthew 17, where he said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would be able to move mountains. When we were there, we talked about it. What kind of faith does it take to do these impossible things? Is it great faith? Is it perfect faith? No, it's faith in the right and perfect object. The reason that believers can do these things, the reason that believers can pray and have God hear them is not because of the worthiness of the believer or the strength of their faith. It's in the object of their faith. Jesus ties this to prayer. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We take that verse and others like it, and we can do a whole lot of damage to it because we look at that verse and we want to make it about who? We want to make it about me. And the fact that whatever I ask for, Certainly God must be pleased, and if I ask for it faithfully, believing that I'll get it, certainly that means that God is obligated to get it to me, but that's not what we know about faith or about prayer at all, because we're not in Matthew 1, we're in Matthew 21. And by this point, we know some things about prayer, don't we? What has Jesus taught us? What does a faithful prayer look like? Our Father, who is in heaven, Lord, set your name apart as holy. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. Lord, will you provide for our basic needs? Lord, will you forgive us in the same measure that we forgive others? Do you suppose that God delights in answering those kinds of prayers? He does. This isn't a call to turn prayer into a shopping list of things that I want. This is a call and a reminder that it is not only the content, but it's the heart behind what you pray. That those who pray according to the will of God and ask with full faith in God will never come back disappointed. Disciples of Christ have some remarkable promises when it comes to prayer. 
and none of them have to do with the number of zeros in our bank account. None of them have to do with the car that's sitting in our driveway. Students, none of those have anything to do with the grade that you get on the test. All of those wonderful promises revolve around the person of Christ and what he's promised to do to conform us to his image. What did Jesus condemn? He condemned the empty, vain worship at the temple. And today, in a very visual, graphic way, he condemned a vain, worthless, empty fig tree. You think that there were prayers offered up at that temple? How many prayers do you think God offered up at the temple in Jerusalem on a Passover week? Thousands upon thousands. But without faith, even if you bring your prayer into the very temple of God, it's worthless. And so Jesus reminds his disciples of two things. First of all, that judgment is real and that it is coming and that he holds the authority to reward and condemn these things. Secondly, that wonderful promise that a faithful response is not only uh, called for, but that it's possible. This this picture of judgment and salvation, and it's not based on where you are or who you are or what you look like. It's based on a faithful response to what God has called us to. So there's this picture of his authority, but that leads to another question, and that is, where does it come from? Because Jesus has shown that he has the authority to command a fig tree to wither, and it does. But if you go beyond that, Jesus has now said that he has the authority to condemn the worship that happens in the temple of God. He's said that he has the authority to tell his disciples that they can pray and that they'll actually receive what they pray for. He said that he has the authority to drive people out of the temple complex and stop them from doing certain things. He said that he has the authority to accept the praise of the children and the crowds that would call him the son of David. And the question is, how can he do that? What's the source of Christ's authority? And if we look at verse 23, we're going to see that that's put to the test pretty quickly. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Now again, let's remember the outline that Dr. Beely gave us last week. If we were to look at the Passion Week after Jesus comes into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry on Sunday, the following day, Monday, he would go in and cleanse the temple. And from Monday and Tuesday, he is possessing the temple. The Messiah has come into his temple and he's restored, at least for the moment, what right worship looks like. He's teaching, he is healing. This is a picture of what uh, right worship in the kingdom ought to look like, given the right object in the right place. It's this wonderful picture. And it simply doesn't last, but that's where we are on Monday and Tuesday. And as he's teaching, he's approached with a test by the religious leaders. And they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, we see these guys come in, and if this were the melodrama of Scripture, as soon as they entered the stage, we would all boo and hiss as a good audience because we know that they are the bad guys. But understand this, the question that they're asking is not a bad question. To ask by what authority Jesus does these things matters. 
Because if you get that answer wrong, then it has, once again, eternal implications. And if Jesus actually doesn't have the authority to do these things, then this whole ministry has been in vain. So the heart of the question itself is a good question. By what authority does Jesus do these things? And you and I need to have an answer to that question. Now, the problem, of course, is they have absolutely no interest in a truthful or right answer to that question. They are not looking for the truth of this situation at all. Because, according to them, they already have a pretty settled understanding of where his authority comes from. But authority dictates what we're able to do. I have the authority to do certain things, and I don't have the authority to do many more things. If I'm driving down the road, and a car that is black and white pulls up behind me, and it begins flashing red and blue lights, I'm going to pull over because they have the authority to do that. If an officer with a uniform and a badge approaches my window and asks for my identification and my registration and my proof of insurance, I'm going to give it to them because they have the authority to do that. If a random car pulled up behind me on the freeway and started flashing its brights, I certainly would not pull over. If someone approaches you on the streets and asks for your license, registration, and social security card, You'd be a fool to give it to them because they don't have the authority to do those things. Well, it turns out you don't heal the blind without some kind of authority. You don't kick people out of the temple like you own the place without some kind of authority. And the religious leaders here are asking Jesus exactly who he thinks he is to do those things. Who gave you the right and the authority to do that? Now, in their minds... Who did have authority in the temple? They did. Where did the chief priests get their authority? Well, these were the Levites. These were the people that God had set aside to do ministry within the temple. The Levites were the people that were supposed to be scattered through the nation to teach and equip the people when it came to the things of God. The scribes had authority because of their great learning, not only of the Torah, not only of the law and of the writings and of the prophets, but because of how they could interact with the various teachers down through the years. The elders had authority among the people. They were recognized for their age, for their position, for their wisdom. They were trusted to uh, settle judicial matters. They were trusted to answer religious questions. So in their mind, uh, these people had the right authority. And now as they come to Jesus, what do they see? Someone who is not a scribe, someone who is certainly not a priest or a chief priest, someone who's not an elder of the people, this is the carpenter, this is the builder, this is someone who's learned in the trade of his father. There's no rabbinical schooling behind him, there's no advanced degrees, there's no uh, name with pedigree to him. To them, Jesus is a nobody from nowhere, and they ask him, where do you think you get the authority to do this? And they are hoping that he says from God. Because they can very quickly move that into a charge of blasphemy and be done with them like they want to. Because humanly speaking, Jesus did not have the authority to do what he did. A man from Nazareth in Galilee does not have the right to command people to function any way in the temple of God. Unless... He is exactly who he says he is. But Jesus isn't about to be baited into a conflict. 
Jesus responds, as he always does, with perfect understanding of their heart and their intentions and with perfect wisdom that's appropriate for the situation. And in fact, Jesus doesn't answer their question. Uh, he puts a turn on the entire situation. He turns their question into a question of his own. And it's not a dodge. It's a fairly common way of teaching. Asking questions provokes thought among the people that you're interacting with. And Jesus asks great questions. We have seen fantastic questions as we've gone through the gospel accounts. Who do you say that I am? That's a great question. Have you never read? That's a penetrating question. Why do you call me good? That's a thought-provoking question. Now Jesus asks a question that's going to expose both their motive and their lack of understanding. Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, boys, I have a question for you. And if you answer this question, then I'll tell you about where I get my authority from. Verse 25, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Now, he's talking about John the Baptist. And when he talks about the baptism of John, he's not talking about John's ability to dunk people in the River Jordan. He's asking about the authority of John. He says, you want to talk about my authority? Before we get onto that, let's ask this. Where did John get his authority from? How was John able to do what he did? How was John able to preach a message of repentance in the wilderness that impacted a nation? How was John able to condemn even you, scribes and hair Pharisees, in the wilderness and get away with that? How was John able to do what he did? Well, what do we know? Looking at John's resume and his history, from our perspective in the Gospel accounts, we know certain things about John's baptism, about John's authority. We could go to Luke's Gospel and see that from before his birth, John was uh, ordained and set aside by God himself to do exactly what he did. Uh, his mom was old and barren. Zechariah and Elizabeth had no business having children, and yet God said that they would. Not only would they have a child, but this one would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. And we see that as Mary, who is bearing Jesus in her womb, comes in and greets Elizabeth. The baby in her womb jumps. He recognizes Jesus even before he's born. It's a remarkable thing. We see a promise that he would go in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and we see him do just that. We can go to Matthew's gospel where we hear him command the nation to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We read as he condemned the Pharisees, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? We can see where John talks about the axe being laid at the root, where every fruitless tree is only fit for the fire. Fruitless trees, that ought to sound fairly familiar with where we're at today. we were to go to John's gospel, in John 1.29, we would see John the Baptist at the sight of Jesus say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, John's not just another desert hermit. He wasn't just a preacher. He was one who uniquely prepared the nation and who pointed the way toward their Messiah. Jesus says, here's my question. Where did John get his authority? And that question is trouble for the religious leaders. More trouble than we realize. It actually puts them in an impossible situation. Look at their response. They discussed it among themselves. They can't even give a quick answer. They've got to come into a huddle. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, 
he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? Problem number one, they cannot say that the baptism of John came from heaven. Because if John spoke as a prophet, if John spoke as one with authority that was given from God, they would have had to do what? They would have had to listen and they would have had to obey. If John spoke with an authority that was not his own, if John spoke with authority that came from God, then exactly what he said and everything that he said was true. If John is from heaven, then when he calls them hypocrites, he's right. If John's authority, his baptism is from heaven, when he condemns their empty worship, then he's right. John's authority is from heaven, then when he calls them hypocrites and vipers, he's right. And if he's right, then what should they have done? Rushed to the water, fallen on their knees, and begged God for forgiveness. If John's authority is from heaven, they should have turned to the people and begged their forgiveness for fleecing them and abusing them instead of leading them like the shepherds that they were called to be. And more than anything else, if John is from heaven, then when Jesus shows up, these guys should have been the first in line to follow after him. Because if John is from heaven, if John's authority is from heaven, then everything that he says about Jesus is absolutely true. He is the one who, although he was born after John, came before John. Then he really is the one who John is not fit to stoop down and untie his sandals. He really is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And if this is the Lamb, if this is the Son, if this is the Messiah, then they should have been willing to abandon everything to follow after him. So I can't say that John came from God. But for them, the other option's not any better. Look at verse 26. But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Now make no mistake, this is what they thought. In their minds, John is just another man. In fact, he's a man that they are glad was dealt with and done away with. But these men are afraid because the people have responded to John. When the crowds look at John, in the crowd's estimation and evaluation, John is not just a man. They think that John is a prophet. And if they go against the crowds, then they've got a big problem on their hands. Once again, remember what Dr. Bealey said. This is not just a sequence of events that is happening. There's movement and pressure and very human circumstances that are happening here. If you tell 100,000 people that a man that they revere was a false prophet, a liar, and should be condemned by God, you've got 100,000 angry people. And 100,000 angry people makes for no peace in the city. And these people had seen rebellions put down and put down hard. Rome craves peace in its provinces. Rome was more than willing to go to war to extend the empire, but once you have an empire that covers most of the known world, you cannot spend time, money, and resources putting down little rebellion after little rebellion, so you make examples of people. And if there's a riot in the temple on the Passover, these men certainly lose their position, and more than likely they lose their lives. And so they can't accept John without accepting Jesus. 
And they can't overtly reject Jesus without rejecting John. And so they're stuck with no response except to say, we do not know. And I don't think we understand exactly how catastrophic that answer is for them sometimes. Because above everybody else in Jerusalem, these were the guys that were supposed to know. This is not such a hard question that we would expect them to convene a council to decide the answer. This should not have been such a difficult question that they take a week to contemplate and debate before they come back with a response. This is simply a question of whether someone had legitimate authority or not. This is a question that should have fallen well within the realm of their expertise. Brandy and I this week are going into an oncologist appointment for her. Nothing new that's come up, just a routine follow-up appointment for her, so no big announcement there. But as we go into that appointment, as we meet with her oncologist, what would happen if we started asking certain questions? This, this new medication that she's starting, what are some of the possible side effects? Is it possible that this could be one of the outcomes of that? If we don't proceed down this, what does it look like as far as uh, probability that the cancer will come back? What would happen if we asked those questions to the doctor and he looked at us and said, I don't know. But what do you guys think? How long do you think we'd stay in that office? Not very long. We would go find a new expert who actually had expertise in their field. These men, above everyone else, were the ones that were supposed to know. This is their area of expertise. Who comes from God and who does not? To say that you don't know strips you of any credibility in that. And so Jesus simply says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Why should he? First of all, he doesn't owe them an answer at all. We know that. But beyond that, he's now exposed their hypocrisy so that they have no interest in the truth. And not only do they have no interest in the truth, but they have no ability to deal with the truth. They are absolutely unequipped to deal with an answer. If you cannot answer about John, then you certainly are not equipped to answer about the authority of the Messiah. That's where we're going to end for today. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see Jesus use parables to demonstrate what rejection is looking like, that increasing focus on rejection and rebellion. But we need to remember something. They ask Jesus a question, and he doesn't give them an answer, not because he's being evasive or not because he's being coy, but because it's a question there should have been no need to ask. By this point, it should have been unmistakable who Jesus was. With their understanding and their education and their background, it should have been unmistakable as to who Jesus was. The fact that they had the scriptures that told them what the Messiah would look like, what he would do, should have made it unmistakable to see who he was. But to acknowledge that, to recognize the truth, would have cost them everything. Now, we see the tragic irony in that, in that giving up everything, they would have gained something much more valuable, but they can't and they won't, and they don't. And so as the week goes on, the tension builds, the pressures escalate, the conflicts escalate, and the plan of God is set in motion where the son will die to redeem for himself a people.
just two things to consider before we go today. And really the first one kind of deals with what we talked about two weeks ago and then again today, and that is, uh, is your worship leafy or fruitful? Silly way of saying it, but I hope you think about it. Because we can do a lot of stuff that looks awfully good. We can paint the building. We can have pews instead of chairs, which I know is more holy to some of you. You can wear the right clothes. You can sing all the songs. You can volunteer in Sunday school. You can give a big percentage of your income. And boy, from the outside, you can look awfully good. I can look awfully good. We can look an awful lot like a church. There has to be some difficult heart evaluation about whether our worship ever penetrates the surface. Why do we do what we do? Why do we sing what we sing? Why do we pray what we pray? Why do we preach what we preach? And if there's no heart behind it, then no matter what we get right, we've gotten the only thing that matters wrong. And to be a tree without fruit leads to judgment. A life without real worship leads to judgment. But on the other side of that, the wonderful promise is the Spirit produces fruit in us. See, we don't have to worry about making sure that we have pews or chairs. We don't have to worry about whether we wore the right tie or whether shorts were ultimately acceptable. Because to those that come in faith, the Spirit produces fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It produces a changed mind. It produces men and women who live their lives as a holy sacrifice, who give their bodies, heart, mind, and soul completely over to God. And faith means that our worship is accepted, even though on its faith, on its face, it can't come close to being what God deserves. Secondly, are we questioning or responding? Jesus has promised us wonderful things, peace with God, brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside of us, a kingdom and an inheritance, but make no mistake, Jesus has also called us to do some very difficult things. Take up your cross and follow me. They hated the master. How much more do you think they will hate his disciples? Flee what the world pursues and pursue wholeheartedly those things that the world sees absolutely no value in, and those are difficult things. Sometimes obedience puts us into conflict and even hardship. And the danger is that we come to Jesus and in the nicest, most polite, most religious way possible say, are you sure? Do you know what obeying you would actually look like? Do you know what obedience might actually cost me? And underneath all of that, is the hard attitude that says, who are you to tell me how to order my life? I don't ever want to put it that way. I want to frame it in much more acceptable terms. 
But at the end of the day, for the disciple of Christ, there is the option, obedience or rebellion. And we serve the one who has the absolute authority to command and order our entire lives toward obedience. But he's not just the king that commands obedience. He's the shepherd who leads and provides and guides us in that way. He's the savior who knows what it is to pursue obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. He knows far greater than I do what it means to suffer unjustly for the sake of obedience and ultimately reward beyond that. Are we a fruitful people? Are we a faithful people? Are we a people who are willing to obey even when the cost is high because the king has called us to it? Let's pray. Lord, those questions are very easy to ask and they're very hard to answer. Because, Lord, in any given week, there are times when we come and we determine that obedience is simply not worth it. And although we would never say it with our words, our lives ask the question of who are you to tell us what to do. You are God. You are the sovereign creator of all things. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. You're the one who sustains your people. You're the one who won't allow us to be tempted without providing the means of escape. Lord, you're good. So Lord, will you make us a people that boldly obey you and then completely trust you to sustain us in our obedience. God, how ill-equipped I am to do that on my own. Strengthen us for the task that you've called us to. Encourage us in our walk as we pursue you. And Lord, come quickly. We long to be more than anything in your presence. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.